Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. The home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I'm one of your hosts. Yes, he is, and my name is Miss Melmoy, and I am the other host. She sure is, and tonight we are bringing to you episode 112, in which I will be telling Miss Mel the spooky story of the Benjamin Triangle. Oh, I've I've heard tell of um, people talk of 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 this uh, the thing this spot mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, right? Vermont, Vermont, Vermont. Yeah. New England, nice. one of New England's creepiest um, geographic regions. Nice, exciting. Yes, yeah. uh, Mr. Kruger's would not tell me for the past two weeks. <laughs> he just said he had a, a spooky campfire tale to tell me because I got me some Rona. You did. Got me better from some Rona, but it wasn't quite all there to, yeah. you know, go all in on an episode. So I'm just going to be an audience member like you yeah. Continue to recover. Um, and you are feeling much oh, yeah. better now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you had been traveling and whatnot. Yes. So. Apparently I went to a hot spot for this new variant, according to your local news. Yes, I saw a thing and it was like, oh, it's cropping up in Canada, England, and Denmark. And I was like, Well, well, um, you know, kids just uh, stay safe out there. Stay safe out there. Get boosted. Get boosted when you're eligible. It's about that time, probably for most folks. I think so. As well as uh, your flu shots. Yes, that so, I can get. The boosting, I have to wait now. Right. How long? I don't know, because I. Waiting for my doctor to tell me. I feel like she's annoyed with me. Every time I'm like, I had this happen. Am I going to be okay? <laughs> you know. She's like, they have she's an instant like, messaging op- option and I had COVID. She's just like, I'm out of the office. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm on vacation for Labor Day. Now. Now. And you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. However. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of PTO you're saving up. Um. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to just hear a little spooky end of summer tale before we get into the. We've got some big stuff coming up in in the fall, so. Me too. That reminds me, I did think of a Thanksgiving episode. Do we have one? I know we have a Christmas. Um, one. We, I mean, we have something penciled in, but we can train. That's also fine too. Anyway, point is, that's insider baseball. <clears throat> yeah, the point, yeah, there is a lot coming up um, in the last quarter of the year. This, I think, spooky season is going to get kicked off in about two weeks now with The Nun, too. Oh, yeah. Did, did you see the the nun lady is suing them for, like... It sure is. ...to get her money? Yeah, compensation for how much her image has been used to market. Which, go for it. I mean, yeah. 
Because I believe The Nun is like the most profitable film in the Conjuring universe, or it holds some type of record. I mean, it did make $365 million. That's quite a lot. Which, if you told me that was the Conjuring universe's biggest, let me look in that. No, you don't have them listed with with money. Okay, that's fine. I'll just take that as... (laughs) I, I think it, I think it is the most profitable. Yeah, because the only other one that I think would come close is The Conjuring Two, and that was three hundred and twenty-one million. Okay. So yeah, I mean, yeah, all that to say, I think it makes a lot of sense that she wants some recognition for her image, like the yeah. nun. Like, Valak is, like, an iconic horror villain now. Well, and I, um, what's his name? I forget his last name. His first name is William, because I'm hearing his his intro in his podcast. But one of the co-hosts on Guide to the Unknown um, was tweeting about how, like, the nun character, like, Valak, is, like, not so much a character as, like, a mascot. And, like, therefore, like, should be, like, if you're just, like, if you're just using that image to, like, sell your movies at the level that you are, then, yeah, like, she she should be compensated for that. Yeah. Like, it's not, like, even, like, having, like, Taysa from Mika or whatever, like, you know, be the face of that mini franchise within it, like, you know. And I'm all for various, you know, working types getting their bag. Everyone get paid, except for... Bob Iger. Right. Yeah, everyone get paid according to the work that you do and, like, how that helps generate profit. It's not that difficult of a concept. Yeah. Um, this has been our podcast, The Writer's Strike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, you know... Yes, lots of spooky things are to come, but there have also been lots of spooky things going on this summer. So let's do like a read, watch, listen, um, horror headlines check-in. What have you been up to since our I Know What You Did Last Summer episode? Oh my gosh, it feels like so long ago. <laughs> I guess because we did like early July. We recorded for the 4th, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I read um, You're Not Supposed to Die Tonight by... Mm-hmm. Kaylin Byron, which is like a YA slasher type book that takes place at this like, which sounds honestly like really cool, this like summer camp experience where like you basically, it's like an attraction based on like an in-world slasher movie called like The Curse of Mirror Lake, I think is what it's called. But, like, you, like, live out, like, you, like, do, like, they have actors who are playing, like, somebody's playing the killer and, like, characters from the movie. And, like, you know, you go in and you, like, act out the movie. And the person who's the final girl or the final whatever, sometimes it's boys, gets, like, a t-shirt as, like, a prize at the end. But anyway, it takes place there. And obviously, like, you know, things get weird and real and, and that sort of thing. Um, I will say I did think it was two different books kind of smushed together, Mm -hmm. but it was fun, Um, and it was a good, like, 
end of summer read because it takes place toward of like towards the end of their season for the summer. Like it's like the last, you know, like haunt of the the yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was good. And then I watched a few things. As you know, I I finally watched the other Exorcist movies. Yeah, yeah. Don't know what brought that on, but um. Prepping for Exorcist Believer in October. Yeah. <laughs> that one was certainly a movie. Yeah. The third one was pretty solid. Everyone's screaming their lines, <laughs> which was something. But um, I think it would have been better served not being an Exorcist movie. Yeah, because it kind of isn't aside from just having like that title on it. Yeah, and they, like, shoehorn in, like, some characters from The Exorcist. Yeah. But, um, movie I did watch and had... <laughs> the hospital scare was, like, pretty... And I knew it was coming because I had, like, seen it on the, like, countdown or whatever. And it still got me. It's because so it, like, happens, like, a second after you expect it to. Mm-hmm. Um, which is wild. But um, a movie I did see and had opinions on, though, was The Outwaters. Have you heard anything about this? Oh, yes. I know it's quite a bit. And I saw your letterbox review. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it just, it's truly seems polarizing. People either love the Outwaters or not so much. <laughs> Where Skinnamarink, I was willing to look at it and be like, I understand what you're doing. I think you could use, you know, a little bit of like, Judging and editing, you know, this and that. The Outwaters is just fully like, you know, I, I don't, I understand what you want to do here. I don't think, like, I don't think it, it delivers on, like, anything whatsoever. It's the longest 110 minutes, which that's already really long for a found footage film. That's a, that's a bit long for a found footage And it feels long. It's just, you know, I don't want to do like, you know, no spoiler review, but yeah, it it is. Um, th- what I will say is like, I don't, you know, mind ambiguity. I don't like all that stuff's fine, but your the internal logic of your story has to still make sense. And like, I feel like people forget that when it comes to like having ambiguous scares or ambiguous endings um you know is that like it's still like you have to know that it makes sense and the audience has to like believe that like has to understand enough of it to know that it's like a mystery um this like just devolved into a collection of scenes yeah that's well some I think some movies can work as collections of scenes, but like you were saying, there still has to be an internal logic even to like film like that. Yeah. So it was a bummer because the premise for it was interesting. And the first like I was kind of down for what it was like doing, like in the first act. Uh-huh. Like the first act is very slow. Um, but I was like sort of into like what was going on and then it just sort of it lost me yeah and 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 never regained me it never regained you and that's unfortunate and yeah. sometimes it happens yeah 
Anyway, what did you, well, I know some of what you read, watch, and listen, but tell, tell me about it. Yeah, well, um, I guess in the found footage arena, I um, finally checked out uh, both um, Horror and the High Deserts. I did see that you had a review popped up. What did you think? I thought um, both, like, enjoyable. Um, Different. Different. The first one I thought was, like, a, like, fairly unsettling, like, little movie. Yeah. Um, you know, they definitely, like, it goes for atmosphere and, like, tries to, like, build up that sense of dread, Mm -hmm. um, which I think it accomplishes, like, fairly well I think much like the outwaters there are some pacing issues mm-hmm. um and like maybe one or two story things that I would have tightened up but if wow if those last like 15 minutes of the movie aren't like genuinely terrifying like I felt myself as having a physical reaction I yeah. was I was scared um, so that was cool. It felt almost like the the Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, like the scene in the in the with the the um, infrared, like yeah. vision, like that's kind of what it felt like. Yeah, definitely. Bit. I think it's nodding to that. I think it's trying to go for that same feeling. Um, and for me, it worked. Mm-hmm. And then the second one. Um, I felt more or less pretty similar. I thought it was like, that was, it was like a pretty solid um, follow up. Like, again, that sort of like sense of dread, I think is something that this like crew and filmmaker does pretty well. Um, I, again, had some more like story, maybe like issues. um, And the ending there isn't, wasn't quite as tense, but I was still like satisfied enough and intrigued enough for whatever like part three is going to look like for this series. Yeah, which I think comes out this October. Oh, does it? I think so. I think that's when it's supposed to come out. Um, yeah, and I've seen most of the summer's heavy hitters including um insidious the red door oh i did watch that too yeah um which i was sort of like this is fine yeah um, it's nostalgia for you know yeah yeah um it was nice to see like patrick wilson and rose Byrne back um I think his direction was pretty solid. The scares were like a little familiar. Um, yeah. I thought the middle dragged more than it needed to. Um, but I didn't think it was like a complete bomb. Like some people really did not like it. And yeah, I thought I was, it was fine. Yeah, I thought it was fine. My thing is, is like, I. I'm truly like waiting for something to make me feel the way I felt the first time watching the first one in like high school or whenever it came out mm-hmm. when they like go into the further for the first time 
and like you know like you're never gonna really recapture like how like really well done the first one is but yeah because it's so unique and then like five phones into the franchise there's not like it's like what more can you do with the further Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i think it was just sort of like oh this is a nice like retread into this world it's not necessarily anything unique but it's not anything terrible either yeah you know um what else oh and uh talk to me the big surprise hit of the summer i still need to see that i i thought it was like it's a it's a like nasty little film at parts yeah i had a friend who saw it like the weekend it came out i think and she was like it it was kind of like hereditary where afterwards she's like i had to go like do an activity yeah, it's really affected a lot of people that way. I wasn't quite, I think, in love with it the way a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. I would say that, like, I really liked it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the the narrative, like, a bit predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, like, well-made and crafted, and there's some really solid acting in it. Um, and... The, the idea of the hand is cool and different so yeah I'm like I'm happy it has a sequel I'm just a little surprised it was as, as, as successful as it was um not like mad about it just surprised uh and um a couple other things I've, oh I finally got around to cocaine bear I did see that you watched Cocaine Bear. (laughs) Which was, you know, sort of, like, fun and silly. Yeah. Um, It's like if if one of those, like, sort of, um, like, a Sharknado-type film actually had a budget. Right. The vibe of it. And also, like, half the cast of friggin' uh, American Horror Story is in that movie. Or not American Horror Story. Oh, my God. The Americans. Americans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because even Philip plays the guy at the beginning who jumps out of the plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Forget his name, the guy, the actor who plays Philip. Um, yeah. Uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, right? Yes. Yeah. No. That's no. a good there. Why? Uh, Let's see here. He's played. What is his name? Matthew Reese. Matthew Reese. I was like, I knew Reese is in his name somewhere. Jonathan Reese Myers was on the Tudors. Yeah. (laughs) He was. Look, they're both. Both, I think, Welsh actors, though. So maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in that. And Carrie Russell, um, yeah, and Margot Martindale. Yeah, <laughs> so, like, I know that's why when she, she popped up, I was like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, it was fun and silly. Yeah. Um, and I read this book, The Nightmare Man. Okay. And I did not like it. Oh. Um. And I guess I'll leave it at that. Have anything nice to say, kind of situation? Oh, it's like one of those. I 
I think it was poorly written and yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like across, you know, across the board, like technically and stylistically, it was not for me. Interesting. Yeah. A cool idea, but yeah. Well, one to stay away from, maybe. Yeah, at least in my opinion. I think it has its fans, though. Um, yeah, I'm looking on Goodreads, and it seems like a lot of people seem to to be into it. I found the author's voice to be um, hacky mm-hmm. and misogynistic. And there were far too many tropes used as Mm. story crutches. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know. Maybe I was, I don't know, was in the wrong mood or something, but it really did not fit with me. Well, it's a bummer. But you did read Thinner to wash the taste out of your mouth. Did read Sinner, um, which was a first time read, and that was really good. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to read it. So <laughs> I, I know. And I kept thinking of you um, and your sort of relationship with body horror and <laughs> reading some of the sections and being like, ooh, nope, no, would not like that. Nope. Mm-hmm. You would not care for that paragraph. <laughs> um, yeah, effective, nasty little book. So, uh, and then the last thing I will mention is that I am thoroughly enjoying the new season of What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yes. I didn't watch. Did I watch? No, I don't think I watched this this week's episode. <laughs> they do a roast of Laszlo. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. Fuck off. Uh, no. So was when Guillermo had to like deal with his little clone animal <laughs> clone people. Yeah. Uh, I'm just so del- I'm so glad that that show is like maintained its quality in its fifth season. Mm-hmm. I like that each season there's like it honestly reminds me a little bit of like um how uh like search party would like reinvent itself kind of every season like with this i feel like there's a different like every season like they do a really good job of nailing like this is our season focus and arc and this is what we're going to to be and it's like completely out of left field different every single time (laughs) like oh wait that's okay yeah Yeah. Um, so i've uh i've also been thoroughly enjoying it (laughs) it's so good um well yeah let's uh let's now move into the main portion of our episode sound good ready to kick back and (laughs) enjoy the creeps i am tell me all about this this bennington triangle yeah so the bennington triangle so What I'll say is that um, I first sort of was like peaked by 
um, this strange region of uh, New England, thanks to one of the early episodes of Lore back in the day. Oh. And then... That's from the past. Yeah, and then it recently came up. I was going through the back catalog um, of My Favorite Murder, and they covered it. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, da 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 And then so... It went down a couple rabbit holes and this and that. And I was like, yeah, we should talk about this. We should talk about it now. So <laughs> cover from COVID. And so I used both of those episodes as sources, plus um, a couple different articles as well. And something that came up a couple of different times is that for people who live in the area that we will talk about that is now known as the Bennington Triangle, mm-hmm. is that they have more or less just accepted the fact that at some point something is going to disappear in their lives. Like a, like a structure? An object, um, maybe an animal, sometimes people. Okay. Um, Now, what we know of now as the Bennington Triangle is primarily the area immediately surrounding um, the town and township, sorry, no, the town and the county Mm -hmm. of Glastonbury in Vermont, near the town of Bennington but they're not they're like close to each other but like on opposite sides of the mountain kind of as okay. as, I, on, okay. as I understand like a mountain between them basically yeah okay. and I think that is sort of like how the triangle which is not obviously like a perfect triangle is formed between these mm-hmm. like three main points right the mountain and the two towns um This area of the United States is considered one of the most beautiful parts of the country. Um, It's like the White Mountains, that area, right? I think so, yeah, because that's, they're sort of like up there, right? Like Maine, New Hampshire. Those are the only mountains I know in Vermont, so I'm just assuming that it's those. That sounds right. Let's go with that. Um, Sure. There's also lots of um, forest around that area, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that is sort of like a big part of what makes the story and stories involving the Bennington Triangle so creepy is the woods, which we have talked about a lot on our podcast and the symbolic significance of the woods in culture and storytelling and folklore. Um, and of course, practically, like, right? Like the woods are on paper, like dangerous. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to like navigate and move in a forest. You could end up in some serious trouble. And so this is sort of what we're going to be dealing with just to provide a little bit of context. Essentially, we're in the wilds of New England. Okay. And we're going we're gonna to go back a little bit um, to talk about 
early settlements and um, when things started to um, get weird, at least on record. Okay. We're going to start off by talking about a man, uh, Benning Wentworth. Of the, of the Bennington Bennings? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> so, by all accounts, Benning Wentworth was um, greedy oh. and egotistical and quite full of himself. Which are all qualities that um, I think most of us would say no thank you to. Mm-hmm. But if you were living in the age of British colonial expansion and what was termed the new world, those qualities made you sort of um, a perfect match. Okay. And so um, Benny Wentworth fit right in to that world. And in 1741, when he was 45 years old, he was named uh, by the king as the governor of the colony of New Hampshire. And eight years later, the crown bestowed on him the power to distribute land grants. Um, So he drew up charters for new territory to expand the colony in what would one day become Vermont. And he sort of just arbitrarily drew township squares all over the new map with no real logical sense of um, dividing up the land. It was almost like a child, basically, drawing drawing shapes. It's like if I were given a map and told to... <laughs> well, make township. <laughs> make a township. Yeah. And that that was his strategy. And one of those random boundary lines that were drawn was around a mountain in the southwest corner of the state, just northeast of Bennington, a town, of course, that was named for uh, Bennington Wentworth. Um, And so the mountain and the town are all in this arbitrary uh, township line that he draws. And he names this area um, from a folkloric magical town in uh, his home country of England, Glastonbury. Um, Okay. Yeah, which I think is like a big part of Arthurian legend a lot of the time, right? Glastonbury. Yeah, Glastonbury Toll is supposed to be Avalon. Okay, yeah. A hill there is believed to be like the historical island of Avalon. So it bears a lot of like sort of like historical and cultural significance and that name carries some sort of like mythic weight with it. Um, But the mountain has an interesting piece of folklore that was entirely separate of its British slash American name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Way before, you know, the colonists started to spread into this part of North America, um, the mountain belonged to the Algonquin Nation of Native Americans, specifically the Abenaki tribe, um, who had many, many stories concerning the mountain, um, almost all of which were sinister in nature. Oh, good. (laughs) Right? Isn't that solid? Um, the, The big story or the main, I guess, story that was um, carried down through the ages and uh, communicated to the new um, 
white neighbors that arrived eventually was that the mountain was cursed and that uh, you should avoid it in general if you could, but you should most certainly avoid the top of the mountain. Um, Easy. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> that requires hiking. Pass. <laughs> um, but Abenaki hunters frequently reported that um, they would lose their way while on the mountain. Uh, prey would disappear from them in unnatural manners. There were erratic winds that um, changed direction like every few minutes, not corresponding to sort of the pattern of normal wind flow, I guess. Um, and then there were stories of what were known as enchanted stones or enchanted rocks. And it was said that these stones looked like any other boulder you might find on the mountain. But if you were unlucky enough to step on one, you would vanish into air so quickly that you would not even have time to scream. Oh. Yeah. So because of all of that, when these first settlers did arrive in southern Vermont, um, the Abenaki strongly urged them to stay away from the mountain, uh, which, of course, the settlers did not do. <laughs> um, and so in 1791, uh, the first census is taken for the new nation. And Glastonbury Township has a total of six families living in it. So, yeah, they're not avoiding the area, but there's not a ton of people. Um, in fact, uh, the population of the township doesn't even break 100 until after the Civil War. But it's also around that time when the settlers start realizing, oh, there's a lot of trees around here. And that means we could make a profit like setting up lumber and logging mills. And so that's exactly what they do. Uh, they build those, then they build a bunch of kilns, and then they start running their factories nonstop uh, in order to create charcoal. Um, and this was exported down to New York and um, uh, sort of, you know, the more metropolitan areas of the North uh, that were um, using the charcoal and the wood for iron production and um, so there's a lot of economic growth that starts happening uh, up in Glastonbury and Bennington. And in 1792, a temporary railroad is constructed to move all of this material down the mountain faster. And of course, to bring the settlers up where they need to be to, to start working in the factories. And so there are larger and larger numbers that are coming to this area of the state. It's sort of like, it's described that like a cloud was settling over the mountain at this point. Possibly, I mean, well, definitely metaphorically, but possibly literally giving all of the factory production that was going on. Mm -hmm. um, and so economic boom, yes, but tragedy also follows, right? So in 1892, a sawmill worker named Henry McDowell, seemingly and by all accounts and reports out of nowhere, attacked another man, John Crawley. Um, he picked up a rock and 
beat Crawley to death with it. And apparently kept striking him even after he was dead. Um, One of those situations. So authorities are summoned, but McDowell escapes. And he makes it as far um, south as uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, before he's apprehended and taken into custody. He confesses to the murder once he is caught, but he blames it on the voices in his head. Uh, Voices, he said, that started talking to him after um, he took a solo walk up the mountain. And he says they told him um, that he needed to kill, that they wouldn't stop talking, and that they wanted him to kill again. So McDowell is extradited back to Vermont, and he's placed in the state asylum there, at least for a while. Uh, records of McDowell disappear several years into his stay in the asylum. But according to local Vermont legend, McDowell escaped the facility, made his way in secret back to Glastonbury by hiding on one of the train cars um, on the temporary railroad that went up the mountain. And supposedly he then lived out the rest of his days in the forest on the mountain. (laughs) now five years later 1897 uh john harbour and his brother harry they go out hunting just south of glastonbury mountain and while they're hunting they choose to separate a bit um they had come to a fork in the road one decided to take the other you know they each split the path essentially okay um, but as we know, it doesn't take a whole lot to get lost in the forest, um, or to feel isolated and alone. And at one point, um, Harry hears a gun go off and someone cry for help, someone crying that they've been shot. Um, and Harry's pretty sure that that's his brother's voice, his brother, John. So he searches the area, but he can't find his brother. He goes back and he gathers some friends and some other folks from town to help, but they can't find him either. There's no luck. Uh, It's not until the following morning that they stumble upon his body in an area that all of the men are positive that they they searched and combed over the first day. And when they find John's body, they instantly know that something is not quite right. Um, John Harbour's body is found lying on the path, like not like right in the middle of the path, but he's clearly on like a pre-cut path. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some cedar branches sort of like laying on top of him. His rifle is loaded like a shot has not been fired mm-hmm. and it's, it's nearby, but it's out of reach of his body. And some, not all of their accounts, but some of them say that it was propped up against a tree as though someone had placed it there. Okay. And there are drag marks in the dirt 
indicating that John had been dragged to this particular spot in the woods. And then, of course, no cause of death was ever determined. Like, he was just dead, but, like, no, like, bruises or wounds or... Right. And so, obviously, very weird. There's, you know, the noises that Harry heard, like, the gun had not been discharged. Another hunter didn't come forward and say, like, oh, there was an accident, da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, and so this would sort of be like a tragedy, you know, and a cold case that, um, would be unusual for most small towns, but it's not for Bennington and Glassbury. It is just one of many unusual deaths that will soon plague this area of the country. Great. So... Let's talk a bit more about those some uh, unusual circumstances. Oh, forgive me. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to mention, oh. did I? Yeah. That a few decades before um, the murders of John Crowley and, well, the murder of John Crowley and the mysterious death of John Harbour, um, something else occurs in Glastonbury that there are vague records about, but if true, um, maybe gives us some more background to be working with here. Um, In the mid, well, the early to mid 1800s, I think it was the like 1840s ish, right? Um, mm-hmm. A group of people were traveling uh, up, no, down, down from the mountain, um, because at that point only one train was running um, on the temporary railroad, and that train left really late in the evening. Um, and there was a huge downpour that night. And so they were like, okay, well, we need to get people down the mountain maybe a little bit earlier. We can't afford to wait for the train to get here. So they summoned some stagecoaches, right? They did it old school. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of people pile into a stagecoach. Um, they start heading down the down the mountain, which is like a wide dirt path. But then, of course, when there's a torrential downpour going on, what happens to dirt? It turns into mud. Mm-hmm. So the stagecoach gets stuck. Uh, and the driver uh, climbs down from his perch and sort of like looks things over to see how stuck they might be. He's inspecting the wheels. He's looking how deep the mud is. And then he notices something odd. And what he notices are footprints in the mud around the coach. Footprints that are much, much larger than his own. And if the impressions are accurate, um, the feet were not wearing shoes of any kind. And so he makes note of these. He turns around and sees that they are circling the area where the coach is stuck. 
And with his little lantern in the rain and in the mud, he starts following them. And they lead back to the woods, as you might imagine. And as he holds up his lantern to inspect the woods, he hears a commotion from the stagecoach behind him. And he turns and something large and dark has slammed into the side of the coach, forcing all of the passengers to quickly exit out into the storm. And according to multiple accounts from the driver and the passengers, what they see, granted in the rain and the dark, is a figure standing at least two heads taller than a grown man, covered in wet, matted hair, standing on two legs with claws, pointed ears, and eyes that are either yellow or reflect the yellow light of the lanterns. And then hmm. whatever this thing is blends into the shadows and disappears into the woods. <clears throat> <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And um, so in from that moment on, once those reports make it back into town and in the decades and at this point, centuries since, um, that supposed creature has simply just been termed the monster. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's chill. It's so chill. So, jumping back. Sorry for leaving that out initially. <laughs> we have our unfortunate hunting accident, right? Um, the creature, the monster, is on everyone's mind when this occurs, but they don't have too much time to dwell on it in Bennington and Glastonbury because... Um, at this point, the economy is tanking. The um, township, you know, financially is dying. When your business is cutting down trees, you're eventually going to run out of trees to cut down and burn. And so by um, the 1880s, most of the local forests have been stripped away uh, thanks to the economic greed. And then, you know, by 1894-ish, um, like everything was, has sort of just shut down and they start looking at, can we um, switch things over as best as we can? Can we uh, change our coal power train into electric powered? Um, so they sort of like the town sort of takes on this like remodeling project um, to bring new life into their, into their community. Um, a hotel is, outfitted to also be a casino um and for a while this sort of works um and they get some travelers to uh to come up to the to the town and they they sort of present it as like experience life on a frontier town you know right like <laughs> at the turn of the century that was like a big deal right mm -hmm. um and so they they bring in entertainment and they um, 
they expand the casino and and it works a little bit um but because the mountain had been stripped of its forest that made it ill prepared for um spring floods and the melting of snow which you know could not like be caught by the trees and so in the spring of 1895 a catastrophic flood known as a freshet which is rain you know overfill and sort of like melted snow altogether causes massive flooding rushes down the mountainside destroys the trolley tracks um a big chunk of downtown basically like in an instant most of this new frontier vacation life that had been created for the community is gone and so as glastonbury moves into the 20th century life there has all but vanished um the casino falls apart the homes fall into disrepair to the point that like only stones remain uh, the population shrinks at one point until there are just three people living in Glastonbury. Um, I feel like that's not even a, like, that's not even like a, you're, there's just three people. It's yeah, like actually, yeah. There was another article, Glastonbury became the first town that the U.S. government, um, like, dis officially disorganized like basically like dissolved it as like a town they're like there's nothing left here this isn't a thing anymore (laughs) um but um you know the decline of the town meant the return of the forest essentially it meant nature had a chance to sort of spring back so the trees returned um nature sort of like reclaims um glastonbury mountain and with that the allure of the woods and all of its promise and potential danger uh because remember the white people didn't listen to the Abenaki, despite how clear they were about leaving the mountain alone and even seeing how the mountain could treat them when they didn't take care of it. So yes, people do return to Bennington and Glastonbury and the mountain. um, But when they do, they discover that things are just as challenging in this area. And there's still a sense that there's a darkness over the mountain, much like there was before, even with the absence of um, all the old factories. And the um, the people of Glastonbury and Bennington really start to feel this in November of 1943, um, when two, uh, two men, Carl Heinrich and his cousin, Henry, um, go out to camp and hike and, you know, I think it'll do a little bit of like hunting and take in take in the mountain and take in the forest sure. <laughs> nature uh, nature oh yes 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 my apologies yes they were going deer hunting it was deer season right november um and so much like uh our old friends uh the brothers harbor they decided they're going to split up okay. which <laughs> which remained a common thing to do 
Um, and so split it. We love splitting up. We love going love it was in the woods. No, what did you do this weekend? Oh, me and my cousin went into the woods and split up. Split up. What? <laughs> but that's exactly what um, Carl and Henry do. And by the afternoon, uh, Henry hadn't been too successful, so he went back to camp. But Carl wasn't there. Uh, so Henry just sort of waits, sits and waits around. Sun starts to go down. Daylight fades. Now it's that weird twilighty time of day. Henry decides something is wrong. Carl knows to have been back by now. In fact, before then. Um, so he hikes his way out of the forest. He gathers um, some friends. They agree to go to the police to get help. They return to the woods. Uh, Henry takes them back to their campsite. They begin to search for Carl. Over three days, um, they trudge through snow and forest. Um, and what happens? They find Carl's body mm -hmm. lying flat on the path with his rifle propped up against a nearby tree. Now, he's not covered in branches this time, but there are enormous footprints on and around his body that the hunters and the police do not recognize, aside from looking vaguely animal. They settle on the fact that it was probably a bear, but... Um, Carl Herrick has not been mauled or injured or attacked in any way that would be consistent, um, with sort of like a bear assault. They said, if anything, it looked like he may have been squeezed to death. Mm. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. there is no sort of official cause of death listed for Carl Herrick. Much like John Harbor. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. So then, two years later now, in 1945, a 74-year-old um, hunting guide by the name of Mitty Rivers. Mitty Rivers. <laughs> Mitty Rivers, um, who you're you're familiar with, obviously. <laughs> um, is leading a uh, a group of like visiting hunters, I guess, um, in in November um, in the area, you know, up and around the mountain, um, and. They're going along one of the more famous paths on the mountain, which is known as the Long Trail. And uh, at one point, Mitty sort of is like going ahead of the rest of the group, sort of like, um, oh, let me like scout a bit up here. Then I'm going to come back and like, you know, then we'll all go out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he does and goes his little scouting thing, but he never comes back. Um, Mitty. Mitty. Yeah. And locals and the rest of the hunting party, they look for him for over a month. 
and he's never found. Um, the only evidence that comes up is a single rifle cartridge uh, that was found in a stream. The idea maybe being that he leaned over and the cartridge dropped out. Um, by all accounts, he was a pretty experienced outdoorsman, so it's not believed that he would have like done anything reckless or like, you know, drowned or anything like that. Um, but no evidence. Hmm. Then we come to the story, the most famous disappearance within the Bennington Triangle, okay. <laughs> which is disappearance. You may have even heard this before or seen it like on a documentary of Paula Jean Weldon. Okay. I'll tell you a little bit about um, her story. Uh, now we're a year later. It's December 1st, 1946 in Bennington, Vermont, uh, specifically at Bennington College, which is a small uh, liberal arts school that has a reputation for being pretty progressive. Um, Today, Bennington College is open to all genders, but in 1946, it was an all-women's school. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Paula Jean Weldon uh, was a student there, and on December, the uh, like morning-ish, you know, uh, early afternoon, she's finishing up a double shift in the dining hall, which is where she worked. She's 18 years old. She's a sophomore from Connecticut. Um, and according to her friends, she was thinking about switching her major at this time from art to botany. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you go, Paula. Yeah. Um, she was described as she was being very outdoorsy and vibrant and that she had a lot of different interests. She was physically active and in a very experienced hiker. And so on this day, she decides, even though it is early winter in New England, or I guess late autumn officially, she really wants to go on a hike in the afternoon. So she asks a couple of her friends if they are available to join her, but everyone is busy studying for upcoming finals. So she decides that she will go alone. Uh, she says a quick goodbye to her roommate, but she doesn't say exactly where she's headed, just that she's headed out on a long walk. Rookie mistake. Yes. Um, 1946, you know, things are a bit <laughs> different. Uh, so her roommate, Elizabeth, knows that Paula can be kind of spontaneous, but is, you know, pretty responsible as well. Um, and reportedly, just three weeks beforehand, the two of them had gone camping together. That was Paula's idea. They didn't have a great experience. I guess they got caught in the rain for most of it. Um, but Elizabeth, like, she wasn't worried. She knew Paula could handle herself in, like, what could be, like, rough conditions out in um, the great outdoors, right? So she really doesn't think much of it when Paula heads out. Um, according to records, Paula is wearing uh, her distinctive red parka with a fur-lined hood uh, blue jeans and hiking boots. Fashionable. Yeah. She, um, uh, it's all, um, actually 
fashionable, yes, but also like a little bit lightweight given the, um, the weather. Um, well, and I do know if this is the White Mountains, like that area is some of the most treacherous, like in the entire country. Yeah. Uh, like Mount Washington, like is the the deadliest like hike like in just in terms of like people that have like died because of like weather related incidents well because they like it can fluctuate from being like you know chill 50s on the ground and by the time you get halfway up the mountain people are like dying of hypothermia well that's not good yeah yeah that's really scary like how quickly the weather can change when you're like out there on your own yeah. Well, on this day, when Paula heads out, there's no snow on the ground. She leaves around 2.30 p.m. But like you were saying, you know, who knows how quickly things can change. And remember, it's winter in Vermont. Right. And this means the sun is set to go down around 4.15 in the afternoon. Okay, that's so depressing. Yeah. Which means even if there isn't necessarily a change in um, precipitation or anything, uh, it's it's just going to be a lot colder soon. Um, and uh, oh, looks like and actually there there was a call for snow that night. Okay. So she walks off campus um, to a gas station with a gravel pit nearby. And the gas station owner, Danny Fager, remembers watching a young woman matching Paula's description running around inside the gravel pit at one point. Somewhat of an odd detail. Yeah. Um, He clocks it up as like strange behavior, obviously, but he doesn't think much of it. And from there, Paula heads to what seems like her most likely destination, the nearby um, path known as the Long Trail. Now, the Long Trail does live up to its name. It's 273 miles in total. Oh, my God. Yeah. It covers uh, the entire length of Vermont um, from Massachusetts and up into Canada. And its path essentially goes right through um, Glastonbury Mountain. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Paula's obviously planning to just hike a short, small portion of this, as a lot of people in the area do. And she decides she's going to hitchhike in order to get to the trailhead. Um, Now, of course, we raise our eyebrows and we say, absolutely not. In the 40s, hitchhiking was pretty standard for the area. Yeah. Um, And so it wasn't considered that big of a deal. Um, But, you know... Yeah, but it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to judge someone from a different time and mm-hmm. decision. But anyway, um, she ends up getting a ride from a man um, named uh, Lewis Knapp. He picks her up along Route 67A, which is near the college entrance, around 2:45 p.m. She tells him that she um, is headed to Long Trail, and he says he can take her as far as his house on Route 9, which is about three miles away from the trailhead. Um, they don't talk throughout the ride and, um, she just says thank you when, um, he gets to his destination and then she leaves. Okay. Now around 4 PM, a young man by the name of Ernie Whitman is walking with some friends in an area known as the Bigford Hollow, 
which is very close to the long trail. And he sees a young woman in a red parka walking towards him. Um, he's surprised that she's so underdressed for a hike given the late hour. Um, but when she asks Ernie about the long trail, he points her in the right direction, you know, towards Glastonbury Mountain. And off she goes. And there are a few more sightings of a woman on the trail, some confirmed, some unconfirmed. Um, one of the most interesting is an elderly couple who report walking behind a young woman in a red jacket on the trail, um, that they were about 100 yards behind her. She's headed towards the mountain as the sun is setting. Um, and that when she rounds a corner, um, and the couple reaches that corner, they don't see her at all. She's vanished. Okay. And um, there's just, you know, there's just two paths and she's not on either of them. Right? It's like an intersection on the trail and she's, she's gone. So, um, when Paula does not come back to her dorm, um, her roommate Elizabeth thinks she's likely staying late at the library to get in some studying, you know, since she didn't do any that afternoon. Did Elizabeth not pay attention when she asked her to go hiking with her? <laughs> like, well, didn't she ask Elizabeth? And Elizabeth was like, no, that sounds like a you plan. Sure was. I guess she thought she came back and then, like, went to the library to study kind of thing. Because by the time Elizabeth, a time by the time Elizabeth is like getting ready for bed, she starts to become nervous um, because it's not like Paula to just not come home at all. But she decides she's going to wait until the next morning to alert the college authorities um, about about her missing roommate. When she does do that on the morning of December second, the college is luckily immediately responsive. More they, responsive than Elizabeth was. <laughs> I'm sorry, Elizabeth is like coming for Elizabeth. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, have a little initiative. <laughs> she, she, she had it the next morning. Um, so the college they checked the logbook that students had to sign whenever they left campus. Paul and others signed out or signed back in. But this was not super unusual, as most students only signed out and in when they were planning um, to return after the 11 p.m. curfew. So uh, at this point, they call Paula's parents to see if she might have gone home for a visit without, you know, telling anyone. But her parents say no, she did not come home, and they understandably begin to um, freak out. <laughs> so. Uh, her parents, her, the Waldens, uh, they are a wealthy and well-to-do New England family. Um, Paula's father, William Weldon, is a somewhat famous designer of kitchen utensils and cocktail shakers. And <laughs> um, he has a lot of resources at his disposal to use in a search. So he goes up to Bennington College Um Paula's mother stays behind, uh, confined to her bed, as it said that she passed out when she heard the news that her daughter was missing. Um, so another sort of indication that this is out of character and this is unusual behavior for Paula. 
So on December 2nd, Bennington College shuts down completely. And everyone who is able, student and faculty, volunteer to help with a massive search. And as the day goes on, other colleges in the area also cancel classes so that students and teachers can help look for Paula. And it becomes a big deal rel relatively quickly. The search party starts by visiting various locations that friends have heard Paula had wanted to visit on hikes or nature walks. They excavate the gravel pit where the man at the grass the gas station said he saw someone matching her description. Uh, Lewis, the man who drove her towards the trailhead, comes forward. So does Ernie, the man who saw her on the trail. They report their interactions with Paula to help in the search. And this all helps the long trail become the center of the search for Paula. But the trees are dense. There are lots of streams, crossings, and rocks to navigate. Um, the search is thorough, um, apparently, but it is quite slow. Now, around the same time that the trail is being combed, a local taxi driver reports that he took a young woman who vaguely matched Paula's description to a bus station. And this information is used to expand the search area. And so, um, in addition to the Glastonbury Mountain area, investigators are looking into shops and stations along the various bus routes. The possibility that Paula might have um, gone away expands the search as far north as Canada, and um, the possibility that she might even be now be in South Carolina. So, for a search that large, like, okay, well, we're going to need more manpower in order for this to be effective. However, the state of Vermont does not have a state police force at this time. <laughs> and um, all the state's law enforcement is county-based, so local sheriffs all run the show. Crime is really low in Vermont, and leading many citizens of the state to feel that a state police force is not necessary. Um, and that small towns could just sort of handle everything on their own and anything more would be a waste of money. Whether that was, was true or not, who's to say, but because there was no single agency in charge of the search effort for Paula, things quickly became disorganized and uncoordinated, leading to Paula's father becoming so frustrated by how things were going that he starts calling in favors with his connections in New York and Connecticut um, to get their state police to do what they can to help. The FBI is also brought in at one point. Uh, a $5,000 reward is put up regarding um, Paula's whereabouts, which today would be around 80 grand. Ooh. Yeah, so no joke. Um, but there are really no centralized resources and there's too many cooks in the kitchen kind of situation. Her father's trying to, um, keep a handle on things and sort of wrangle everybody, but it's basically just, um, a, a logistical nightmare. So time passes, the search effort is hampered by a lot of stops and starts and red tape. A tip comes in at one point from a waitress in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is about three and a half hours away from Bennington. 
And she says that she served a young woman matching Paula's description on the night of her disappearance. The waitress says the young woman was behaving strangely and seemed very agitated, often darting her head around as though she could hear voices that others in the restaurant could not. Hmm. Um, the tip is believed to be fairly credible, so Paula's father personally investigates, leaving Bennington for a whole 36 hours where, at, without telling anyone where he was going or what he was doing, but ultimately nothing comes from um, the waitress's tip. Okay. As the investigation goes on and more questions start coming up about Paul's disappearance, it starts coming to light that she may not have been quite so happy-go-lucky um, as she seemed on the outside. A few weeks before her disappearance, she refused to go home over Thanksgiving break, choosing to stay at um, Bennington College instead. According to Elizabeth, Paula and her father had had a recent falling out, and Paula was somewhat depressed recently because of that. She was the oldest in her family of um, four daughters and seemed to start to think that her parents preferred her younger siblings to her, which led to part of the conflict. And so people started to speculate that Paula may have run away or taken her own life to escape feelings of not being wanted or not being loved. And by December 16th, two weeks after Paula vanishes, uh, her father, William, packs up her belongings and the items in her dorm and takes them back with him to Connecticut. He goes on a huge sort of smear campaign against the state government of Vermont and the press for not having a state police force to provide an organized search effort. Um, there are there's so little oversight because of this that for the first 10 days of the investigation, no official record is kept of the search. Yeah. All of the negative press, as you might imagine, leads the Vermont state legislator to ultimately create a Vermont state police seven months after Paula disappears. Paula? Yeah, so. <laughs> well, She's the reason Vermont has police. <laughs> and that comes out of it. Now, of course, there's lots of theories about what might have happened to Paula. Um, and any one of them could be uh could be what actually occurred because no trace of her has ever been found to this day no bones no clothing scraps in the snow no personal items nothing um obviously a couple alleged sightings and a couple tips all of them have been looked into uh nothing has panned out none of the supposed sightings years later have ever been proven to be her um, all they just can really confirm are the people who saw her that day, December 1st, 1946. So, of course, it's a possibility she may have gotten lost in the woods and died of exposure, um, which a lot of people think is the most likely explanation, or that she was attacked by a wild animal and that her remains got lost in the woods around Long Trail or that they were buried under the snow. Um or that some, you know, a wolf or a bear may have dragged her back to a den type situation. Um, and that, you know, that would make it a lot harder to find any, any remains that would be out there. Um, or that she was 
she was lost and cold, so she found a cave and hid in it, and it may have been the home of a wild animal. So, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is, of course, also the theory that um, Paula ended up cursed by Glastonbury Mountain, um, much in the same way that McDowell was supposedly cursed after his walk up the mountain, which went in when he claimed he then started hearing voices that told him to kill. Those that believe that the waitress really did serve Paula um, that next night subscribe to this theory. You know, the young woman who seemed like she was hearing voices others in the restaurant could not. Or perhaps Paula stepped on one of the unfortunate enchanted stones and truly vanished into thin air. We'll never know. At one point in 1955, a lumberjack named Fred uh, Giday tells a friend that he knows what happened to Paula because he was living in the area um, near Glastonbury Mountain and um, where Paula disappeared on that day. And he says he had been in a fight with his girlfriend and stormed off. And when he did, he saw Paula in the woods and followed her. And he says he knows where her body is buried but when he's brought in for questioning for this, you know, really sort of intense confession, he retracts everything and says it was just a joke. Hmm. Pretty sick joke. Um, and since they couldn't confirm anything, he said either way, he is let go. Um, but it does sort of bring some renewed interest in the case. Um at one point, skeletal remains are found in Adams, Massachusetts, which is only about a 45-minute drive from Bennington. And people speculate that those are the remains of um, Paula Jean Weldon. But the bones are determined to be too old to have been Paula's. Um, and so, once again, hope sort of fades away. Like I said, this case remains unsolved. No trace of Paula has ever been found. And she is the most famous missing person case in the Bennington area, but not the last. Interesting. Uh, what's that? I said interesting. Yes. So we'll just quickly now go through some of um, the others uh, that have since disappeared. Um. Four years later, um, in October of uh, 1950, Paul Jefferson, uh, eight years old, is out with his mother in their truck. Um, it looks like they were maybe headed to drop some things off at the town dump. Um, and at one point, Paul's mother, Mrs. Jefferson, pulls over near the tree line um, to the Bennington Woods and uh, gets out of the truck for a moment leaving her son inside. When she returns, he is gone. Uh, she shouts for Paul, but no one ever answers. She calls the police for help. Eventually there's a whole team of rescue workers that scours the woods. Um, bloodhounds are brought in and they pick up Paul's scent and trace it all the way to an intersection 
um, along the long trail on Glastonbury Mountain where the scent then vanishes. The same intersection where the old couple saw Paul disappear on the corner, right. It's also interesting to note a lot, and a lot of people point out that that day, Paul Jefferson was wearing a red jacket. Hmm. Indeed. Um, another strange disappearance involves uh, uh, local woman Frida Langer. She was 53 years old um, in um, late October of 1950, um, just a few uh, weeks after Paul disappeared. She and her family were camping out um, in the woods around Bennington and Glastonbury. And she and her cousin, Herbert Elsner, decided they were going to go on a hike to a nearby reservoir. About 10 minutes into their hike, Frida slipped and fell into a stream. She wasn't injured, but she, you know, like her clothes and her shoes were soaked through. And she was like, well, this is going to be uncomfortable. Just wait here. I'll run back to camp and I'll change real quickly and catch up with you. So she runs off, but she doesn't come back for over an hour. Um, So Herbert goes back to to see what the deal is and he sort of steps into camp and the rest of his family are like there's Frida and he's like you tell me um so at some point you know Frida Frida Langer vanished um her story gets a little bit more closure however um there's no trace of her found during the initial um searches that were conducted over the first like two to three weeks after she disappeared. But a couple months later in May of 1951, her body is found about four miles from the campsite near the Deerfield river in an area that had um, been searched several times over when she initially disappeared. It was an open field basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And Suddenly, in May, um, there was Frida's body. Oh. Right right in the middle of the field. Um, just lying, you know, lying face up. And um, no cause of death could be determined. Well, of course, the condition of her remains was quite poor at that time. So that seems to be more the factor of why they couldn't determine the cause of death. And so, what is going on in this area? What is going on in the Long Trail, the Bennington Triangle, Glastonbury Mountain? We talked about some of the theories. Obviously some people think that it could be a human element, um, a local serial killer, suggested that you know mcdowell after his escape from the asylum took up residence there and was just still there people yeah (laughs) still there sort of 
cropsy style, mm-hmm. um, which is a, an interesting thought. Um, but yeah, there's no, um, like there are some links between sort of each of like the, the folks that disappeared or vanished or had bad things happen to them on the mountain, but there's no like one thing that links all of these people together, you know, like there's no evidence that Frida Langer was wearing red or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. and there's like the, the two rifles that were separated, you know, for the bodies that were found, but there was nothing like that when Frida was found and, and this, that, and the other. And of course, you know, hikers go missing every day. Um, but, uh, one has to, one has to wonder, um, based off of, uh, sort of the proximity and the geographic nature of this area if something truly sinister is going on if we should have listened to the abenaki more than we did um but uh the the mystery and the questions definitely persist around all of the missing folks particularly Paula Jean Weldon um that has inspired a lot of uh storytelling and literature um shirley jackson legendary horror writer was actually very interested in the case uh her husband was a professor at bennington college when it was like why is this familiar to me like why is bennington sticking in my brain bennington college that's what it was yes so yes her husband taught there when paula went missing um, and she wrote um, a no- her novel, um, Hengsman, is inspired by yes. Paula's disappearance. Oh, um, interesting. Yes. And uh, Donna Tart um, has actually said that her um, classic novel, uh, The Secret History, was mm-hmm. possibly inspired by Paula's disappearance. Um, the... Uh, school um, that that uh, novel is set at is a fictional version of Bennington College okay. um, that uh, Donna Tart was familiar with, and so and there have been uh, some other books and short stories that have sort of like um, fictionalized accounts of what happened to Paula um, through possibilities that a professor murdered her or that her father killed her or another student, or that she was going to meet a secret lover, or that the pressures of her life were just too much, um, or you know, or just that something unexpected and bad happened to her. Um, I mean, when someone truly disappears without a trace, as, and there are some creepy details left behind, it's an open template for writers and storytellers to speculate about not only the specific story, but just the idea of what it means to go missing, I think. There's um, a really good book called The Cold Vanish mm. by, I forget the author's, uh, John Billman. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yes, I've heard of this. Yes. It's a nonfiction book and it's about 
like various missing persons cases in the United States, some of which have been solved. Most of them like haven't been. Um, and it uses like, it's about several, but like this sort of like overarching one that sort of ties a lot of them together mm. is this one about a, um, you know, a, a young man. He was like in his early twenties, he went missing in um, Olympic national park in Washington state. Um, and they eventually did, like, reach a resolution about what happened to him, but, like, the book uses, like, you know, his family's, like, year-plus search for answers and, like, you know, the fact that, like, so many other missing person cases never get solved is, like, a way to dive into, like, the psychology of it and, like, what it does to people when you, like, you know, if you, you know, when you don't find a body or evidence of anything conclusive, um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like the ultimate, you know, the unanswered question, the true mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been explored a lot in different ways over the years. Um, uh, William Shatner's uh, show Weird or What looked at the Bennington Triangle in a season three episode. Um, obviously, the, it's been covered on Lore and My Favorite Murder. Um, most terrifying places in America, mm-hmm. um, the uh, paranormal TV series uh, from Travel Channel also looked at all of the missing um, people and strange events that have occurred in the Bennington Triangle over the years in a 2018 special. They also delved into some um, local reports and lore about uh, the monster. And um and you know, and it's obviously most of the the disappearances, obviously, and like the famous ones and the things I've recounted here, took place in the 1800s, and then that cluster of them, like in the 40s mm-hmm. and 50s. But um, in um, t- uh, 2008, um, a young man, Robert Singley, um, a Bennington College student, he got got lost, like supposedly disappeared within. The Bennington Triangle. He was found safely um, eventually, but people thought, oh no, it's happening again. Um, so it is it is interesting to to think about and to wonder and you know, it's definitely kind of creepy. But uh, if Paula Jean Weldon were alive today, she would be 94 years old. Um, yeah. So it is possible, but I think unlikely we may find out what happened to her um, or any of the others. And that is the story of the mysterious Bennington Triangle. Creepy. I've never driven through, like I've driven through parts of Vermont. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as I know, I've never been in that area. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting. I've never been to Vermont. I've never been that far up into New England, but this uh, makes me hesitate a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> I ca- I thought of a lot when I was like looking into this story, like almost like the way people have speculated about Paula and what happened to her, like. 
and sort of like the history of Bennington and Glastonbury, I kept thinking of Twin Peaks. Right. Like logging and small isolated town and like a vivacious girl, you know, that something yeah. terrible happens to. But and then it's like, did she have secrets? Did she da 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 da? Um, it's interesting because before being set in Washington state, there was like a draft of Twin Peaks where it originally was taking place in like upstate New York. Sure. So. I mean, and I see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's something else I feel like I kept thinking about in regards to the story. And now I just lost it, but. Yeah, I thought it was pretty creepy. I thought it was interesting. And I'm I'm a sucker for like a the ultimate cold case, you know? The mm-hmm. unsolved ones. Yeah. So. No, it's interesting to think about just, you know, again, like recommend the cold vanish. Um, just because, yeah. you know, it's it's so fascinating that like even today, like there are people who just go missing in like the most minuscule of like wilds right. in the United States and are just no evidence of them is ever seen ever again. That's so scary. Yeah. It's like a real this yeah, it's, it feels this feels like a real life picnic at hanging rock in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yeah. You know, like you go up the mountain but you might not come back down. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that creeped you out a little bit. <laughs> I um, mean, it, it, like, it's funny, though, because my reaction is like, I kind of want to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And then I'm on here, like, three episodes from now. Okay, Chatterer, so there's no sign of Miss Mel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, listen, if you just, if you check it out, tell people where you're going. Yeah. Make sure. Well, and always, you know, like, tell. Make sure Elizabeth. Well. (laughs) Yeah, don't fucking trust Elizabeth. Elizabeth is useless. But, you know, tell park rangers, tell friends, say, hey, if I haven't called you by this time. Come find me. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Well, um, don't wear red coats in the uh, mm-hmm. Glastonbury Mountain. Yeah, there was like a, I think there was a Reddit thread or something, something I came across where someone was going into detail about the color red attracting the monster. Um, and I didn't dive completely into that, but it could be an interesting angle to look at. Like a bull. Right. Right. If you have any theories about the Bennington Triangle or what ha- what may have happened to the people who vanished there over the years, we would love to hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can share them with us in a number of different ways. How can they do so, Miss Mel? They can email us at splatterhatter669 at gmail.com. They can tweet us at tweet us, tweet at us, tweet at us. X at us. 
You don't tweet somebody, you tweet at somebody. Or do you X at them? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. The world is so complicated now. Um, you can go on there, though, and find us at Splatter Chatter 666, minus all the vowels in our name. Just give us a search and we'll pop right up. You can leave a comment on the blog at splatterchatterpodcast.com. Got it. Crushed it. You can send a little ask on splatterchatter.tumblr.com or you can send a little DM on splatterchatter. I was going to say splatterchatter at instagram.com. That's not it. Just at splatterchatter666 on Instagram. Yeah. And um, I think that will leave us uh, closing out our episode on the Bennington Triangle. When we next return to you for episode 113, um, it will be, you know, right, right, right in the heart of back to school season Mm -hmm. um, in September. And so in honor of that, we're going to take a look at 1998's The Faculty, directed by Robert Rodriguez and written by Kevin Williamson and starring, well, I think everybody. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that. I've been looking forward to that episode. Um, you suggested it, I think, a while back. Well, I think I mentioned something about it, and you were like, let's do... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and so we shall. And, uh, until we, uh, enroll in class for the faculty... Um, we want to remind you guys to keep up the creep, and we will say au revoir, adios, and dasu.